I am honored to be here. I just want to thank a couple people. First off, New Community, I want to thank you in advance for extending me some grace. Uh, I may not preach in the style that you like, and I may not be someone you're used to, and I know what it's like when there's visiting preachers around, and you're kind of like, oh, you know. Um, I feel the same way. So <laughs> I'm, I'm thanking you in advance for extending me some grace and not napping through the sermon, but my hope is that God will use me in spite of me to speak to you today. Pastor Peter, New Community staff, uh, I know you hold the pulpit very dear to your heart. You protect it by making sure there is the gospel is always proclaimed, truth presides. So I thank you for uh, trusting me with that task today. I am humbled and honored, and I, uh, I don't take this lightly. I'll try not to use phrases such as, I don't know English very well. I moved here when I was 10 years old. I won't say things like, are you tracking? Or, oh, church, church, look up here, look up here, look up here. This is so important. This is so important. I'll try not to do that. (laughs) Yeah, that's all. Uh, And let me just clear the air. A lot of people have come up to me after announcements and been like, you know, Nathan, you and Pastor Peter kind of dress alike. Let me clear the air. Yes, Peter does dress like me. He's been trying to grow a beard for like the last four years. Hasn't worked. Um, Today's going to be a bit of a topical sermon, a bit more of a thematic sermon. I hope that's okay with you. I love telling stories. If you know me, I tell the same stories to you probably ten times in a day. So uh, I hope you don't mind that. I'm, I'm a firm believer that stories from everyday life have some way of showing us the character of God and can illum- actually illuminate Scripture. So I'm going to throw in stories. And of course, I'm influenced by New Community being here for about three years um, and Pastor Peter. So you're going to hear the same themes you hear on a weekly basis. Gospel versus religion, Jesus, the cross, all that good stuff. Let me introduce myself just a little so I'm not just the stranger up here or the random guy who does announcements with grace. Um, just a little bit about me. I was raised in the suburbs of Chicago, went, got my undergraduate degree, got a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Musical Theater Performance, spent about five years working professionally all over the country as a professional actor and singer, uh, doing some tour work, uh, regional theater, some Shakespeare, all that good stuff. Eventually, uh, I tore a ligament in my knee, which made me drop out of some, uh, of some theater work. Uh, moved back to Chicago to have knee surgery. While I was having knee surgery, I got accepted at North Park Theological Seminary. Just finished up there with my Master's of Divinity, writing a thesis on uh, the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is uh, the denomination we're a part of, and homosexuality. And then also I work for the Marin Foundation, which is a nonprofit here in Chicago that works to build bridges between the LGBT community and the church. I work as the director of pastoral care there, so I spend a lot of time speaking and preaching on homosexuality, teaching classes, as well as providing pastoral care. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about homosexuality in this sermon at all, but if that's something you want to talk to me about, I love talking about it, so we can move that on. Um, And uh, when I was acting... And I drink water a lot, so, and usually I end up spilling it all over myself. So by the end of the sermon, I might be soaked. Um, when I was acting, I was kind of immersed into the gay community. There's a lot of gays and lesbians uh, inside the musical theater world. And as a straight Christian male, at times I was the only straight male in certain productions. And so I was immersed in the gay community, felt welcomed. It was pretty amazing, like, as a straight guy that I felt that I was, that I belonged into this community. And, and I felt welcomed, and I was so loved there. Um, and I found that the, all my gay friends had, the majority of them, probably almost all, maybe 100%, disproportionately high number of my gay friends had had horrific experiences or had a negative experience with church or with Christians. And I found this so odd. And this was a time when I was not surrounded by Christians. I wasn't in a Christian bubble. I'd never been in that until I went to seminary. And I realized a lot of my gay friends were kicked out of their families or kicked out of their church when they had come out. They were shunned by their families. Some of them literally were spit upon by Christians at a Christian university. And I had this disconnect of why my group of friends that I belonged with and that I loved so dearly couldn't belong to the church, something that I loved so dearly. And it seemed the church and the Christian community worked on this model that really excluded certain people rather than included them. They had this closed-door policy rather than an open-door policy, and they focused on behavior modification rather than gospel transformation. 
And so over these years, I realized certain churches that my friends had been a part of and certain churches and Christian communities that I had been a part of worked on this model where, where you behave, you believe, and then you belong. That if you behave a certain way, if you act a certain way, if you do these things and don't do these things and you don't go drinking and you don't do chew and you don't go with girls who do or whatever that phrase is, right? (laughs) If you behave a certain way and you're all smiley on Sunday and say the Lord blessed me, right? And And then you believe what we believe. You say these things are sins and these things are not sins and this is the doctrine that you follow and this is right and this is wrong. Then you can belong. A pastor I know talks about the, the I'm, as this model is like the I'm okay, you're not okay mentality. A lot of these Christians or these churches think that everything inside the church is okay, but everything outside of the church is not okay. They embrace this ethic of perfection rather than an ethic of love. It's easy to become judgmental and rigid and then legalistic, and, and there's some sort of superiority complex that comes on. And, and these people often think of themselves more highly than they should, and they, and they don't even think about putting others before themselves. One author even says that he finds it, they find it easy to blame an atheist for not acting like a Christian, yet fail to act like a Christian in the presence of an atheist. Guilty. And because of all of this, there's very little room for grace. People can't belong. People actually run away from the church. People then make their own little community, their own little church, because they've been kicked out of the church, and they don't belong to the broader church. Have you seen this type of church? Have you seen this type of Christian? Perhaps are you this type of Christian? Now, I'm not saying that these men and women are not Christians, and I'm not saying that these churches are are even doing amazing things for God, and I'm not by any means bashing the big C church, for the church is the bride of Christ. But my fear is that in my experience, in my friend's experience, these churches and these Christians can distort our understanding of grace, and they can distort our understanding of God, and worse, People give up entirely on God because they're forced to behave rather than allowed to belong. And so thus we come to this idea that if we behave a certain way and we believe a certain thing, then God will accept us. We forget that there's a difference between religion and gospel. That actually religion, root word, comes from bondage. It means bondage. Religion says we negotiate with God to try to get help from God for our good behavior. We do whatever we're told, and hopefully, oh, geez, God will accept us. And so because of religion, we're told you have to be a certain way and act a certain way and behave a certain way and believe a certain doctrine, and then belonging can happen. Then we're clean. Then we're holy. Then we're holy and perfect before God. And yet the more that I read the Bible, I find this completely antithetical to the gospel and to Scripture. What I see all throughout the Bible is rather than behave, believe, belong. Belong, believe, behave. And better yet, I like the terminology, belong, believe, become. See, a church that works on this model of belonging and then believing and then becoming, it allows people to come as they are, like literally, right? It allows people to be honest and vulnerable. It leaves room for grace. And in actuality, it's all about grace. It allows us to acknowledge that we're not perfect, but God is. It allows us to acknowledge that we're not righteous, but God is. It allows us to acknowledge that I don't got my stuff together, oh, but God does. And so the belong, believe, become model says anyone can belong. And as they belong, all their needs are met. They're included, they're affirmed, they're loved, they're embraced, they're validated, they're welcomed into a community of Christians. Belong. And then only after they belong in this community that is loving and affirming and countercultural do they see other Christians doing these countercultural things. Do they hear about this guy named Jesus? Do they learn that Jesus was the Son of God? And, and, and do they learn about the scriptures and the Bible and they believe? And then only after belonging and only after believing do they become. By the power of the Holy Spirit does any transformation happen. It's the process of sanctification, the process of becoming a disciple. It's a journey. So you belong in this community, you believe, and then starts the process of sanctification, the process of becoming a disciple. 
Oh, that's grace. Because you can belong not being a Christian. You can belong. You can be loved and validated. You don't have to believe while you belong. But when you do believe, something happens and you start to become something different and you spend your life becoming a disciple of Jesus. I love that. And I think a perfect example of this is, well, there's numerous ones, but one example that I really love is doubting Thomas. I'm a big doubter, so I I relate with Thomas. Thomas only appears six times throughout Scripture, uh, uh, six times in the the Gospels. The first three times he appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all uh, list of disciples. So it just says, here are the disciples. Thomas is one of them. The fourth time that he occurs, uh, Jesus is speaking about Lazarus who had died, and and Jesus wants to go to him. And and Thomas, like, boldly acclaims, yeah, let's go with Jesus to die with him. The fifth occasion, Jesus is uh, at, the, it's at, I think, the Last Supper, and he's going, and Jesus says, he's going to the Father, and he says, disciples, you should know the way. And Thomas pipes up and says, well, well how, how, do, how are we supposed to know the way? And Jesus' family says, well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then the final occasion is in John chapter 20, right? This is the big doubting Thomas scene. Jesus had been raised from the dead. All his disciples knew it, and they're all hanging out, and they're like, Jesus raised from the dead. And Thomas doesn't believe it. And he says, unless I touch his, the wounds in his hand and the wound in his side and I actually feel it, I'm not going to believe that he has been raised from the dead. Then the text goes on to say great, a great few words. It says, a week later. So a week later, hanging out with the disciples, everyone believes. Thomas does not believe that Jesus has been raised from the dead for a whole week. And then the disciples are together and Jesus appears to him. And Jesus goes right to Thomas and says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And then Thomas says, my Lord, my God. And Thomas went, as church history knows, went on to proclaim the gospel, brought the gospel to India, and was later martyred for his belief. So for three years... Three years, Thomas belongs to this inner circle. He spends every day with Jesus. He's intimately known by Jesus. Jesus knows him. He knows Jesus. He knows the disciples. And then, and then he, the whole week goes by and he doesn't believe. And then he believes. And what does he do? He worships God and is transformed. He becomes a martyr. He belongs. He believes. And then he becomes. This is what the church should be. This is how, what should happen for you and I. That, that the Christian community should reflect this. That, that we belong into a community where we learn to live like Jesus. We learn about who Jesus is. We come flaws and all, warts and all. We are educated. We don't have to be a Christian. We get to see things. We get to enjoy things. And then there, there, there might be that chance where we believe in Jesus who claims to be the Son of God. And then through Jesus, we become disciples who work to be agents of change, who work for reconciliation, who work for forgiveness, and who are helpers in bringing about God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That is what we get to do. Okay. I think there's something... I'm not like a psychologist, so I don't know like the deal behind this, but I'm sure there's books written on it that you can go read. But, but I think there's something innately in us, at least innately in me, that has this desire, a deep, aching desire to belong. And not only do I have a deep desire to belong, I have a deep desire to be loved. And not only do I have a deep desire to be loved, I have a deep desire to have my needs met. I want, I, I want to be fully known, and I want to fully know others. I want to be deeply loved, but I want to deeply love others. And when I think on it, I go, oh, that's so scary. And, and yes, it's scary. And yes, there are risks. And yes, I might get hurt. And yes, I already have been hurt. But, but I still desire it. I, I, I still ache for it. I mean, do we not long to be accepted warts and all? No masks, just warts and all. On the first night when we had this small group for gays and lesbians, we went around the, the room and kind of shared why we wanted to be there. What was it about this group that we wanted to be there for? And we kind of went around the room and shared part of our story and um, just shared why we wanted to be in this small group. And the last gentleman who went had never been to our church. A friend here from New Community uh, invited him to this, and he showed up. He had a similar experience to what I said in the beginning, kind of kicked around from church to church, kind of disapproved by his family because he was gay. And he goes, I, he says these words, I've been looking for a place where I can just be me and breathe. And then he said, 
Tonight, I feel like I can breathe. I want to I belong somewhere where I can breathe. Where I can just breathe and be me. And I think this is seen throughout Scripture, too. Real quickly, Genesis 2, Adam and, Adam and Eve, right? Adam, well, before Eve. So Adam is hanging out in the, in the garden with God. He's in the presence of God, and yet there's some sort of loneliness going on. Interesting, with God, but loneliness. He, he, he wants to belong, or maybe. And, and God says, oh, it's not good that Adam, this first human, should be alone. I will make him an equal. I'll make him this suitable helper. So this is, this is what I find funny. God goes and brings him all these animals. And it's like, here, Adam, here's a giraffe, an equal. Is this a suitable helper? Can you imagine that? No, it's not. Oh, here, Adam. Here's, that's why I think God is funny. Here, Adam, here's a lion, a suitable helper. Well, this was an equal. No, that doesn't. No, I'm still lonely. I still need. I, there's, ah. And so, you know, the story, God goes on to make Eve, right? Another human, an equal. Someone who will be side by side with him. Someone who will be there for companionship and will wipe away this loneliness. And then the text says, they felt no shame. They belonged, warts and all. It was out there. Or move forward to the New Testament. In Mark 10, there's this guy named Bartimaeus who's blind. And because he's blind, he's sitting on the outskirts of town. He's not allowed to belong. And all of a sudden, Jesus and his disciples come walking through town. And Bartimaeus sees, well, he doesn't see. What am I thinking? Uh, Maybe he hears or uses his other senses to notice that Jesus and his disciples are walking by. And he starts screaming, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Over and over. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the disciples actually go and rebuke him because he's not supposed to belong. He's not supposed to be a part of this Jewish group. And yet Jesus rebukes his disciples and says, no, bring him over to here. And then the text goes on to say, Bartimaeus jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. He's blind. He jumps up. He's blind. He jumps up and he comes to Jesus. And what happened? Jesus heals him. Jesus gives him his sight. And he belongs to this community and becomes a follower of Jesus. When I belong, I can breathe. When I belong, I feel no shame. And when I belong, I will jump up and follow. I can be me. I can, I can put my feet up on the coffee table with holy socks and all. And, and I have refrigerator rights so I can, you know, go to the fridge at someone else's home and, and get myself a snack. Belonging, belonging to me feels like home. And so my question is, can new community be this? Where people walk in and they can breathe. People can walk in and they feel no shame. People walk in and they're willing to jump up and follow. Because you feel safe and you feel accepted and you're acknowledged and you're allowed to be vulnerable and authentic. You're affirmed, you're, you're validated, and you're loved. A desire to be loved. Perhaps that's why I love romantic comedy so much. Oh, come on. Notting Hill, Julia Roberts, standing in the bookshop. I'm just a girl standing in front of a boy asking him to love her. Cue tears. I love those things. But, and as a Christian, here's the thing. Like, I read the Bible, and I know that God loves me. Oh, God is a God of love. So I get it in my head, and I read it in Scripture, and I know I'm called a child of God, and I know that God knows the, the hairs on my head, and I know that God knit me together in my mother's room, and he knows when I lie down and when I stand up and when I go to the depths and when I'm on the highest mountain, and I know that in Christ all things hold together and all my needs are met. But I want to see it, and I want to feel it. I spent some time in Thailand been there for uh, about three times, and I uh, w- did some mission work over there. So I led different mission trips over there. And we spent numerous times uh, in the slums of Bangkok living with families, Buddhist families. And um, we taught them English. And one day, uh, we had been teaching English all week. And uh, this young little girl, her name was Phi, seven-year-old girl, just the love of my life. She uh, comes up and, like, sits right next to me. She hadn't been there all week. 
And, and her English is impeccable. Like, she actually says umbrella rather than umbrella. And, like, just amazing, amazing. And uh, she'd, like, do these cute things where she'd, like, learn an English phrase and then turn to me and be like, hello, my name is. You know, like, it was awesome. Anyways, we're having fun together, playing games and all this, and all of a sudden she, like, sticks her finger at me. And so I do what any male would do, and I pulled her finger. (laughs) And she shook her head, and she went, no, 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 no. And she did it again. And so this time I, like, grabbed her hand, and I, like, shook it like that. And she shook her head, no, 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 no. And then she did it again. And I looked at her, and I was like, fine, what? I don't know what you're doing. And so she grabbed my hand, and she, like, folded my fingers around and stuck out my finger. And then she did the same thing to her hand. And then she brought our hands together, and they formed a little heart. Oh, just, I know, I know, just just wait, just wait. And then she looks me in the eye, and she says, I love you. In a time when I didn't feel that loved, I was transitioning in life from being an actor to being a seminarian. I was in a country I didn't know, around people I I wasn't really felt like I belonged. This seven-year-old girl, a Buddhist girl, God used her to just show me how much he loves me. And then we spent the whole week together. We played badminton together. And, and every time she, the, the ice cream man came by, she would run to the ice cream man and get an ice cream and run back to me and make sure I had the first bite. We'd have dinner and she'd feed me things. And she'd ask me, how is it? Is it yummy? And any time I left the slum community, she'd say, where are you going? Will you be back? All in Thai, not English. But, and so for a whole week... She just lavished love on me, lavished love on me, and I saw it, and I felt it. And then I come back to the U.S., and I'm not in the slums of Bangkok, and I'm not really around lovable people, and sometimes I'm actually at church with Christians around people that I don't want to love. But can new community be a place where where we're known for lavishing love? where we go to the fruit stand and we buy fruit and we give the first bite to someone else? Can we be a place where people are loved? And can we, can we be a place where our needs, our deepest needs are met? Not only can we belong, not only can we be loved, but, but where we can be met. See, the more independent I try to be, the more I realize how dependent I really am. And that's like, it hurts my soul. I don't want to be dependent. But we are dependent people. And if you're sitting there thinking, well, I'm dependent, then I have to say something like, well, do you make your own oxygen? No, you're dependent. Embrace it. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) But I have these needs. Not only, and I don't want to, I don't want to come across as if like I'm a needy person, but, but I, I do. I have these needs. I work for a foundation that doesn't get a lot of funding. A lot of Christians don't want to support a Christian organization that reaches out to the gay community. And I'm dependent on a few people to give me money and to support our foundation so I can at least get a few dollars. I'm dependent on some friends and family members who lead me spiritually. I have these needs. And yet here's, here's me being authentic. I don't ask for help, and I don't let others know of my needs. This summer, I broke my foot. I developed three blood clots in my leg. Part of a blood clot broke up, traveled through my body, into my heart, into my lung. If the clot was big enough, I would have died instantly. Thank the Lord, I survived. I was out for a couple months, was hospitalized, spent about six weeks on bed rest, lying around, Luckily, my mom made me toast every morning. And if you want to lose like 18 pounds in a few weeks, have toast. And that's it. <laughs> or, or don't do that. Like, eat normally. But I was out, like, resting. I watched a lot of romantic comedies during this time, too. Eh? And, and people did amazing things. Like, in my time of need, my family was there for me. 
In my time of need, church people did some pretty amazing things. I got a basket full of goodies. I've got hundreds of dollars of gift cards to grocery stores and, and Blockbuster. And I got books and letters and snacks and a cute little picture frame. And I got prayers and emails. And people called me while I was in the hospital. And people called me at home. Can I pray for you? And then, and then something interesting happened. People would say, Nathan, do you, do you need me to go to the grocery store for you? I, it's probably hard to go to the grocery store on a broken foot. Do, do you need help? And I would say, I'm fine. I got it. Don't worry about it. Nathan, do, do you need anything? May, I'll, I'll come over and cook you a meal. No, I, I can cook my own meals. Don't worry about it. I'm fine. Nathan, I know it's probably lonely being on a couch. Do, do you want me to come over and just like watch a movie? Keep you company? No, 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 I'm fine. I'm fine. Don't worry about it. And then I put on this fake smile and this fake little attitude that I was fine. And so for a few months, no one knew that I really didn't trust God. For a few months, no one really knew that I was scared that I wouldn't wake up in the morning, that I might get another clot and it would block my lung. For a few months, rather than turning outward to this community, this church that I call home for years, I turned inward and tried to be self-sufficient. For a few months, I relied solely on my family, which is a good thing. But I could have relied on a whole church body. I could have come up here and said, hey, I need prayer for this. Why why do I do that? Why am I that stubborn? I want to kick myself. Why do I think it's better to grin and bear it than ask for help? to people that would actually help me? Why do I think it's better? Do do I think I I would burden people? Do I think that I can be independent? Perhaps I'm a little too prideful, yeah. Perhaps I'm ashamed. Perhaps I'm I'm, I'm nervous people will say, no, I can't help you. Perhaps I'm nervous that that people might judge me. Oh, he's he's really dependent. (laughs) He doesn't have his act together. And I don't think I'm alone in feeling this way. I think some of us simply will not ask for help. But how will we get our needs met if we don't simply ask for help? I cannot do this alone. I cannot do my ministry. I can't do seminary. I can't do church. I can't do life alone. I can barely dress myself. I can't do it alone. We can't. The church can't. It's not the way it was designed. The church was not designed to be full of people who are self-sufficient. There's this great book out. If you've ever thought about leaving the church or you've been burned by the church or you're tired of the church or you're here at New Community and you want to leave the church or you're just coming back to church, there's this great book by Michael Spencer. It's called Mere Churchianity. What I, I know, like, I didn't get it for the longest time. Mere Churchianity. It's really good. He's so raw and authentic. And, and in it, he has this passage where he's talking about his need for community, his need for brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is what he says. He says, I need to see and know real human beings who have walked the path of hard choices and hard times in order to remain faithful to Jesus. I don't need a community to replace Jesus or, or, or to promise to dispense Jesus like a product. I don't need a contrived experience, but a fellowship and a family. I simply need brothers and sisters who will start me on the journey, encourage me along the way, and keep the map right there in front of me so I can see it and we can talk about it. Jesus, he says, doesn't make the Christian life simple. I realize this is going to be a long journey, so I need friends who won't give up. Me too. Me too. So can new community, can we get to the point where on a Sunday morning we, we, we actually speak what we feel rather than what we, what we ought to say? Can we, can we actually use the prayer team that are here every week? Can there be a waiting line? Can we be bold enough to share our secrets and our warts with others in this church? Wouldn't it be great to, to turn to someone in your pew, even if they were a stranger, but because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, that you can turn to them and say, ah, here's my need. I literally don't know how I'm going to pay rent tomorrow. I need help. Hey, stranger, I, I'm really afraid of this. 
Will you just sit with me and, and, and pray? Hey, I see you and your family together quite a bit, and I, I don't have anyone to go home to for the holidays. Um, is there any way I can stay with you? And then, lo and behold, that person would say, I got your rent. Oh, yeah, come on over. We always got extra room at the holidays. Because the thing is, it's an honor to meet someone's need. It's an honor. If someone came to me and said, Nathan, I can't pay my rent, and I had the money to give them rent, oh, it's an honor. Here's the check. You're good. You don't have anyone for Christmas? (laughs) Come on over. This is an honor. You get to have a Christmas. It's an honor. So where can I belong? Where can I be loved? Where can I get my needs met? My only answer is the church. I don't know anywhere else. The church. And the thing is, God commands us to be such a place. God commands us. So now that I'm like 30 minutes into the sermon, we're going to go to the Bible. Here we go. John 13. This is one of my favorite uh, scriptural passages of all time. It is, there's so much here. There's all these cool things. There's cool things that happen before in, in, in uh, John chapter 12 that, that kind of reflect what happens in John 13. And then John thir- chapter 13 kind of explodes in chapters 17 through 21. And I don't have the time for all this. But what we've been talking about this whole time comes together. This desire to belong, this desire to be loved, this desire to get our needs met, this idea of belonging and believing and then becoming, God unfolds it for us in this passage. So John chapter 13, we'll start at verse 1. It says this, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, or he showed them the full extent of his love. Verse 2, the evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. Verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, are you, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you should should never wash my feet. And Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body's clean, and you are clean Though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not every one of them was clean. And verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. So Jesus, during his meal, gets up to show his disciples the full extent of his love. The full ex- and he does, it, he does it in a rather weird way. He washes his disciples' feet. That's weird. I don't like my... That's weird. So let me give you some cultural background just real quick about foot washing. So foot washing was a normal practice in Greco-Roman society and first century Jewish culture, right? It was seen as a daily ritual. It was a religious act. And it was often a token of hospitality when someone first entered a home, right? So this is a world in which roads were really dusty and sandals were worn daily. And so it was a dirty job. 
It wasn't simply wiping away the dust from the road like you would do a bookcase or something like that, but it was scrubbing off the filth of the road, the mud, the dirt, human and animal excrement. And the lowest person, since it was a hierarchical, status-based society, the lowest person, usually a slave, usually a servant, would do the cleaning. And so this was an act with social implications. You never saw someone with a higher status washing someone's feet of those who were beneath them. And so before this meal, the disciples should have entered the house and had immediately had their feet washed by the servant at that place, thus being cleaned up, thus being clean and perfect, 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 thus being clean and perfect and allowed to sit at the table with Jesus. But this isn't what happens. And this is why I love this passage. Jesus does something utterly scandalous. He does something his disciples would never expect. During the meal... Jesus gets up from the table. He takes out his outer, loin clo- uh, outer clothing so that he's only in a loincloth. He literally, physically, is adopting the position of a slave. He's lowering himself from rabbi, teacher, lord to that of a humiliating position. He does something repulsive for his position. That is why Peter objects to it. And he takes the role of the servant, lowering himself from rabbi to a lower class citizen. And what's even interesting, in the actual Greek, right, this idea, the word used to take off the clothing is not what is normally used to describe someone taking off a coat. It's literally, when Jesus says that he, when it says that they took off his outer clothes, it's the same word that talks about numerous times when Jesus says he laid down his life. Interesting. And then Jesus goes around the table as his disciples usually are reclining on their left hand, eating the meal in the center with their legs sprayed out. And Jesus, in his loincloth, goes around the table, washes his disciples' feet, including Judas, who in a matter of moments would betray him. Jesus washes off the mud, washes off the dirt, washes off the junk. Do you see what's happening? Jesus does the cleaning up. Before Jesus, you had to get cleaned up first. You had to be clean before you could belong. And and what I love about this text is Jesus is basically like, you don't have to be cleaned up. You don't have to be perfect before you come see me. No, 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 come as you are. You belong. Come sit at my table. Come lay down. Have some food. Drink some wine. Enjoy the company. Have some laughs. Come see the joy of the Lord. Come taste and see that I am good. You belong. Oh, oh, and and now that you're here, I got you. I'll clean you up. But no, I'm not. No, I'll clean you up. And then, a few chapters later, this text, this full extent, Jesus showing the full extent of his love, happens for all of us in one act at the cross. On the cross, Jesus humbles himself from God to a position of a criminal. God in a loincloth, hanging on a cross, takes all our sins, all our filth, all the crap we have, and destroys it all. That's it. Through the cross, Jesus cleans us all. And you might sit there yelling, yeah, but I'm dirty. No, 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 the cross says clean. And I'm filthy. No, the cross says clean. I'm unworthy. Clean. I'm not good enough. Clean. Look what I've done. Look what I'm ashamed. You are clean. You belong. See, religion creeps in and says, you know what? No, there are conditions to my belonging. Religion creeps in and says, well, I am not clean. No, because of the cross, I belong. Because of the cross, I am clean. Because of the cross, I go and do likewise. So do do you view yourself as unclean? Are you sitting there utterly ashamed of something in your past, a wrong you've committed, something you did on New Year's, something you haven't told a single person? And you might feel dirty, and you might feel unworthy, and you might feel shamed, and you might feel like you could never belong at church. You need to leave and go get cleaned up first. Nope. That's a lie. The cross says you are clean, and the cross says you do belong. Yeah, it acknowledges your dirt, but it doesn't hold it against you. That's why you're clean. 
That's why Pastor Peter, on a weekly basis, says there is nothing you will do that will make God love you more. There is nothing you have done that will make God love you less. And even though you are more wicked and jacked up and sinful and messed up than you ever thought, in Christ, you are more accepted. You are more loved. You are more cherished. You are more affirmed than you ever imagined all at the same time. You are clean and you belong. But another question, who do you view as unclean? Who do you think needs to behave before they can belong? Is it gay men and women? Is it the poor or the uneducated? Perhaps it's someone sitting in your pew. Sorry, but the gospel invites all people to belong. Everyone belongs because Jesus excluded no one. We could do a whole Bible study on this. You have the Gentiles. We learned a few weeks ago about the Ninevites. Some of the worst people in the world were accepted and belonged because of God. The Gentiles were considered unclean and filthy. And yet in Acts, the disciples said, no, they belong. Jesus reached out to the eunuchs who in Leviticus are considered they will never be allowed to be before God. In Leviticus, it also says that the lame and the blind and the poor would never be able to stand before God. And yet what you see in the Gospels is Jesus, Son of God, God in flesh, sitting with the lame, the poor, the blind. Whoa! Children were considered a burden, and yet Jesus says, let the children come to me. Women were considered lower than dogs, and yet Jesus' closest friends were women. There were women apostles. Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, went back to, from his friends who abandoned him and said, you still belong. Jesus went back to his murderers and said, you're clean. God is scandalously inclusive. Scandalously. Whether you think so or not, change that way of thinking. Let's move on. Verses 12 through 17. So now that you are clean, now that you are belong, well, now you go and do. Verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he said. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, your Lord and teacher, who lowered himself to this position and have washed your feet, so you also lower your position and wash one another's feet. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now that you belong, now that you believe, it's time to become. Now that you belong, now that you believe, it's time to do what Christ did for us, for others. That's why all over Scripture, there are these commands. These commands of one another phrases. They're everywhere. Everywhere in scripture, love one another, bear with one another, be devoted to one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, honor one another, speak to one another, live in harmony with one another, wash one another's feet, stop passing judgment on one another, encourage one another, accept one another, greet one another, instruct, serve, and agree, submit to one another, don't slander one another, offer hospitality to one another. And since Jesus laid down his life for us, we can say, lay down your life for one another. Just as Jesus met our needs, so we must meet the needs of others. We have some work to do, not because we're forced to, but we get work, we, we do work because it allows people to belong. We, we, we have work to do that allows people to feel loved. We have work to do that allows people to have all their needs met. That is why Christianity can look so different than the rest of the culture. That's why when people see us doing these one another's, people will say, I want to be a part of that. That's why it it was known to say, see how how they're willing to die for one another? I, I I would belong to that. It's like a dance. When you have two dancers, and a male and a female, and they're dancing on the stage, and they, they, all of a sudden they go to each opposite side of the stage. 
And you start thinking, what are they going to do? And then they start running at one another full force, like a sprint. And then the next thing you know, like the guy is getting ready to lift her. And some amazing thing happens where he lifts her and she does some weird balance and she's on her toe in his hand and he's on one foot and they're spinning around and you think, how how, how do they do that? That, (laughs) Wait, that, that actually looks beautiful. That's amazing. I thought, I thought he dropped her. I, I didn't think they would do it. Look at that. It looks so, it looks effortless. It's not. It's not. That's the risk of vulnerability. It creates a dance. The church can be a beautiful dance. A watching world can see the church dancing and say, how do they do that? How are they bearing with one another? Why, why, would, why would he with the extra bedroom offer it to the guy living on the streets? How, how could he just give a couple hundred dollars and pay for her rent? How do they do that? It looks so effortless. I want to be a part of that. So new community, are we taking care of the isolated? For the gospel compels us to. Can we be a place literally where people can belong, where people can love, be loved, and where people's needs are met? For Christianity isn't about our comfort. Christianity is about providing comfort to others. So if you've been in our church for a while and you slip in late and you get your spiritual needs met and you kind of walk out the back, you'll never get your spiritual needs met and you're not helping meet the needs of others. Do you even notice that there are people who come to church alone and who sit alone and who leave alone? Do you even see them? Would you invite them to lunch? Would you take a risk in order to create a dance? For when one suffers here, all of us suffer. And yet when one is honored, all of us rejoice. And so community isn't, isn't, community isn't created. It's discovered. And so can we who has the name community in our church title, be a place where people actually can discover it. My prayer for us is that we can be in our small groups, in our church, in our families. We can be a place where anyone can belong, a place where anyone can believe, a place where anyone is lavished with love, a place where anyone can be authentic here a place where we take risks, a place where everyone's needs are met, a place where we joyfully meet the needs of others so that we can be a place where we become. We do this all because of what Christ did for us. And now that we know these things, we will be blessed if we do them. Pray with me. God, my soul aches to belong. My soul aches to be loved. My soul aches to have my needs met. And I thank you, God, that you created the church where those things happen. I thank you that you call us clean, that because of what you did on the cross, we belong. And whether we've had horrific experiences in the church, whether we've been told we have to behave before we can belong, remind us that it's a lie. Remind us because you hanging on the cross have proven to us that we belong so that we can become. I'm humbled by who you are, what you have done, and I ask that you would encourage and and make us a community that takes risks, that even today, We would take risks 
so that we create a dance where people look upon new community and say, oh, I want to be a part of that. I want to learn who this Jesus is. We pray all this in the powerful and awesome name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you for the ministry of your spirit here this morning. Father, we thank you for your reminder to us of what it is that we as a church body community have been called to. Father, we thank you for your reminder to us this morning that we do not live this Christian life alone. We thank you for a reminder this morning to us of the absolute critical need for interdependence, for oneness. We thank you, God, for your gospel reminder to us that this is possible because of your Son. And God, as we as a church venture out and journey this year, I pray that this would not just be another side thing, but this need, this yearning, this ministry, and this hope, God, that we carry within us to be connected, to relationally know and to be known, to love and to care and to meet each other's needs. I pray, God, that by the power of your Spirit that we would live it, and as we live it, it will be a powerful demonstration of your kingdom in and among us. Spirit, continue to teach us how. Continue to show us how as we follow your leading. And now as a church, as you go forth, living your life this week. May your eyes be opened to the needs of those around you. May your ears be open to the soft cries of need around you. And may your heart be open that you would live a life of generosity, the generosity that's been shown to you through his son, Jesus Christ. In the name of the Son and the Father and the Spirit, amen. And amen. Church, have a great Sunday and rest of the week. Pastor Michael and I will be up here at the front. If you need prayer, please, please, please come on up. We'd love to pray for you. Have a great week, everybody.